Welcome to On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin at Ms. Magazine. This is a show where we report, rebel, and you know we tell it just like it is. On this show, we center your concerns about rebuilding our nation and advancing the promise of equality. So thank you for joining me as we tackle the most compelling issues of our times. On today's show, we're kicking off our Road to Confirmation series. We'll be following the nomination and confirmation process of President Biden's nominee to replace Justice Stephen Breyer on the United States Supreme Court. Justice Breyer announced at the end of January that he will be stepping down from the court. So On the Issues will take you through each step of the confirmation process as it happens in real time with commentary and analysis from experts. We are moving beyond the toxic masculinity and their clutching of the pearls to speak squarely and substantively about the nomination process, the experience and qualifications of potential nominees, and also what they might bring to the United States Supreme Court. So we'll move beyond the vitriol, hand-wringing, barbs, and the like in light of the possibility of a black woman serving on the United States Supreme Court. Those barbs are real, but also purposeful distractions. There will be a vacancy and there will be a nominee. So let the process begin. Joining me for this episode and to kick us off is Zanel October. She is the Executive Vice President of the American Constitution Society. I'm also joined by Fernita Tolson. She is the Vice Dean for faculty and academic affairs and professor of law at the University of Southern California Gould School of Law. She's a nationally recognized expert on election law and has testified before the United States Congress on voting rights issues. I'm also joined by Stephen Vladek. He is a nationally recognized expert on federal courts and constitutional law. He has argued cases before the United States uh, Supreme Court, the Texas Supreme Court, and lower federal courts. He's also the co-host of the award-winning National Security Law Podcast. And I am also joined by Dean Danielle Holly Walker. She is the Dean and a professor of law at Howard Law School and a former clerk for Chief Judge Carl E. Stewart on the Fifth Circuit. Her research focuses on governance of public schools and diversity in the legal profession. I couldn't be more thrilled than to have these guests joining me as we kick off this series. So I want to set the stage first for our conversation with you, Professor Tolson and Professor Vladek, and we're going to go by first names for Nita and Steve. Already, there's this myth and narrative that only a handful of Black women in the United States qualify to serve on the Supreme Court. And for folks who are listening in, you know that's inaccurate. It's utterly illogical and plays into baseless stereotypes. And that's just based on the standards applied to current Supreme Court justices. And so despite attacks on her qualifications, for example, Justice Sotomayor had more experience before being nominated than any other sitting justice. And that remains the case today with the appointment of three new justices by Donald Trump. I believe that's something, Steve, that that you made mention of. But I want to start us off with talking about demographics. How should we understand the court's demographics leading up till now? And I'll start with you, Fernita, and then go to Steve. Um, so it's been mostly white. Um, we've had some, you know, departures from that, you know, uh, Justice Clarence Thomas, Justice Sotomayor, um, Justice Ginsburg, a few others. But for the most part, the history of the Supreme Court has been predominantly white men. Um, so to say that this particular appointment would be historic would be an understatement. I think that black women bring 
uh, a unique perspective to everything they do. And I don't think that that would be any different with the Supreme Court. Um, so this particular appointment makes me very happy because I think it disrupts a history that has been long problematic. So, Steve, you've been spending quite a bit of time unpacking this for folks uh, on social media. I follow you on Twitter and you've really helped us to understand what this means in terms of clear demographics. And so can you give us some of that? I mean, we had Justice Thurgood Marshall as the first person to integrate the Supreme Court. But what are the numbers that we're looking at just so people really understand it? David Marshall was the 96th justice in the court's history um, after 95 white men. I mean, there's there's some sniping on social media about Justice Cardozo, but, you know, let's be clear, 95 white men. Um, And, you know, there have been 115 justices total up to Justice Barrett. um, And of the 115, all but seven have been white men. So 108 and seven. And, you know, I think what that reflects, Michelle, is, is a couple of different things. It reflects first that you know, up until Justice Marshall's appointment, um, no one thought anyone other than white men <laughs> would be, you know, candidates for the Supreme Court. The first time a woman is a serious uh, in serious consideration is during the Nixon administration um, in the 70s after Marshall's appointed. Um, and so, you know, the notion that like this is somehow, you know, an inappropriate skewing of demographics kind of misses the point that the demographics were inappropriately skewed for most of the court's history. Um, and that in many respects, what this is really about is trying to actually bring back some semblance of diversity. And, and I say back really quickly just to say it used to be that other forms of diversity were actually a structural commitment in the Supreme Court confirmation process, especially geographic diversity. Um, back at a time when our geographic divisions were among the most significant political divisions in the country. Um, and of course, that fell out of the process as well, to the point where eight of the nine current justices, right, spent the, the bulk of their professional careers, you know, in the Northeast. And so I, I think eight it's, it's- Eight out of nine. Eight and, out of nine. And I think, I mean, you, you might quibble over Justice Barrett, but even if it's seven out of nine, and it was eight out of nine before Barrett replaced Ginsburg, versus the old school, Michelle, where you had one justice per circuit. Um, and so I think, you know, it's it's not just diversity of the likes that President Biden has so rightfully committed to and belatedly committed to. It's looking at the court as meant to be representative of what is the prevailing understanding of diversity at that moment in American history. Dean Holly Walker, it is such an honor and privilege to have you on the show with me. And so I want to turn to you because you're the dean at Howard Law School and Howard has had such a tremendous track record before the Supreme Court in shaping civil liberties and civil rights. And here I'm talking about alumni of the law school, its professors, its deans who played instrumental roles in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s in terms of bringing cases that were ultimately heard before the Supreme Court and shaping how we understand civil liberties and civil rights today, even far beyond race. And so I'm wondering what these times mean to you in terms of President Biden promising to nominate a black woman to the court and push back against that, but also what this means to you as a dean, as someone who has to preside over a law school, where there are women law students who hear this kind of rhetoric, um, how exactly are you processing this? It's really interesting here, obviously at Howard, and I think throughout the 
country and throughout the world, Justice Marshall is a celebrated figure um, because he was the first person to integrate um, the Supreme Court. And obviously that came after a time where he became one of the most important Supreme Court litigators in the history of the Supreme Court and eventually served as Solicitor General. So also very important. Um, If you could see the visuals behind me is Charles Hamilton Houston, um, who was Marshall's teacher and also one of the most important Supreme Court litigators um, of the 20th century. And so it is incredibly important to us. I think currently 70% of my law students are black women. So when we talk about what it means in this moment in a law school atmosphere like mine, it means my students for the first time ever seeing a Supreme Court justice who looks like them, right? And so when we talk about what do people aspire to, even when they are already in law school, there are certain doors that are closed for them. And that's what this really represents. The fact that there has never been a Black woman on the Supreme Court means for my students up to this moment, there was a door in our profession that was shut tight and locked because there had never been anyone like them on the court. And so with this appointment, it really does represent that door opening. So as I've been so frustrated hearing the discussion about, is this a racialized affirmative action hire? It's like, no, this door was locked, closed. That means that there was ongoing discrimination against Black women in this setting. And now all President Biden has done is unlock the door. Mm -hmm. That's it. And so that's a really important moment. It is an important moment. And I can't help but think of Ruby Bridges. It's been an image that's come to mind over and over again, uh, seeing the image of a little girl, five, six years old with, uh, with federal troopers, you know, escorting her to school to break down the barriers of segregation so that she could attend a school in Louisiana as the first black child uh, to do so. And in this case, we're talking about a different institution. We're not talking about an institution of education, but we're talking about our courts. And we're talking about the United States Supreme Court as being an institution that has never had amongst its ranks a Black woman. And I want to turn to you, Zanel. Uh, Zanel, you are one of the senior leaders at the American Constitution uh, Society. Um, You are at the American Constitution Society, the executive vice president, um, and it is the country's foremost progressive legal organization that is weighing in on matters of the judiciary. And recently in Politico, you mentioned that during the previous administration, Republican senators worked with President Trump to confirm 234 people to the federal bench. And you mentioned that 84% of whom were white and 76% of whom were men. Uh, Can you unpack a little bit about why you mentioned specifically those statistics to help to educate the American public about this moment and what it represents. Sure. Thank you, Michelle. So it's sort of picking up on the point that um, Dean Holly Walker made, that that door for so long has been closed to Black women in particular and people of color generally. Um, And, you know, speaking of kind of picking up the point that she made with that door being closed, I want to pause for a moment to ask, where's the outrage from those same folks criticizing 
President Biden's decision to nominate a Black woman? Where were they when President Trump's two lists prior to his election didn't contain one Black woman? Garrett Epps actually wrote a really great piece about this just today. And the importance of sharing these lower court numbers um, that President Trump put in place is that that balance is tipped even more. We need diversity on the court. Diversity matters. That experience matters. And we really want a court, a Supreme Court in particular, but also the lower courts, Michelle, so I'm glad you raised that too, that represents the diversity of the American people. For most of our history, as Steve and Pranita and Dean Holly Walker mentioned, it was uniformly white and male. And that goes for our lower courts as well. Uh, We are very much looking forward at ACS to have a first Black woman justice on the Supreme Court and step back and think about that in 2022. It's past time. Who are the majority of Americans? It's worth noting that there is a tremendous distance between the demographic makeup of those who sit on the court, uh, where they were educated, where they grew up, and what they have done with their careers I think it's because our baseline as a society is still white and male. Um, If you think about it, Michelle, you make the point about Ruby Bridges. She's only 67 years old, right? This was not a long time ago. Um, I think about the fact that Justice Marshall was appointed to the court in the late 60s. My sister was born, my oldest sister was born in the late 60s. These are all things happening in the lifetimes of people who are still living. Um, And so I think because that baseline is white and male, um, when people of color are actually rewarded for the hard work that they've been doing, right? There's no doubt that the lists that's being floated are full of wonderful, competent women who can do this job. But because it's so different from that baseline, they have to endure unfair attacks. I mean, we're seeing that with the fact that that there are attacks on a nominee that hasn't been named yet, right? So just by definition, you have to have a problem with the category of people who are on that list as opposed to the person themselves. Um, And so because we are finally getting to a point where we recognize that society is not just white and male, Um, people who are in that category are going to push back against that. Um, One other point, um, you were very hesitant in saying it seems like uh, President Trump only didn't had no plans to appoint a black woman. I would go even further than that. Go further. (laughs) When people show you who they are, you believe them, right? If he wanted to appoint a black woman or had any intentions of doing it, it would have been some on that list. I would say that The only difference between what President Trump has done and what President Biden has done is that he just didn't say the the quiet part out loud, right? Just President Biden is just very clear about the importance of diversity. So he articulated his intention to diversify the court. President Trump does not care about diversity. So he articulated his intention not to appoint diverse, uh, diverse candidates just by virtue of the fact of excluding them from the list. There's no difference between these two things. Well, and certainly to your point, and then I'm going to go to you, Steve, and then Dean Walker, uh, which is that when one looks at the federal bench, the Federal Circuit Court of Appeals, he uh, nominated no black people whatsoever. None were confirmed at all. And one can't say that that was not intentional, right? One can't say that it was just a mistake. And and of Trump's 247 judicial nominees, two were black women. Um, Right, which is well under, which is less than one percent. Right, compared to eleven from President Biden so far. Right, compared to twenty-six from President Obama over two terms. I mean, it's a crazy statistic that in one year, President Biden has already put more black women on the federal bench than any Republican president ever. 
um, and he's about to pass the combined total of every Republican president ever. And so, you know, when when you ask the question, Michelle, I mean, I think you know the answer, of course, right? Which is that there is a universe of people out there who just cannot accept, as Fernita puts it, um, that there are black women who are and deserve to be and rightly should be in whatever the top tier is of how we are thinking about qualifications for the Supreme Court. And I, I think we saw some of this ugliness, you know, on Twitter. Um, and in various other media after the president, after the president's announcement that he was going to commit, recommit to his campaign pledge, where you saw people referring to the notion that it would have to be a, a this is my, not my words, a quote, lesser black woman, unquote. Like, I mean, look at the qualifications of some of the folks who are on this list. And that's without even regarding how much they had to overcome to even get to where they were. And so, you know, it's, it is such a, it is such a powerful example to me as the one white guy in this conversation of, subconscious but deeply structural racism um, and Steve, that pervades I our actually profession. come back to that because you produced a list that helps us to see right really put eyes and to be able to articulate you know uh vocally about what these qualifications represent right because the line shifts when we're talking about uh people who have been uh non-white so we're going to get to that. But, you know, Dean Walker, Holly Walker, I want to turn to you because there's something that is represented, I think, in the rhetoric uh, that, as Ted Cruz says, it's offensive that President Biden has announced that he will uh, nominate a black woman. Uh, there have been uh, those who've said that uh, any black woman essentially would be lesser. Uh, and then the remake of that, the revision is that, you know, I don't mean lesser, I mean just less qualified as if somehow that means something different. What message does that send to all black women and girls? I mean, what is really, I mean, if we had to just sort of be very explicit about what uh, this rhetoric means, what does it say? I mean, uh, to steal the title of a colleague's book, Mira Dial, to say presumed incompetence, right? So it's a presumption that Black women are not prepared for this. And I, I do want to rewind all the way to the last Obama appointment, what should have been the last Obama appointment, where remember that in that conversation, there was a question about, should he nominate a Black woman? And I remember the articles that came out. And at that time, you know, there were some of the women who are currently being mentioned, but President Biden has really changed the shape of this conversation already by impacting the lower courts, right? So by having eight Black women nominated, only eight Black women had ever served on the appellate court before uh, before President Biden uh, was elected and to have him nominate eight Black women, now the conversation has changed because we have more in the pipeline. But I think when you hear someone say, this will need to be a lesser nominee. Number one, it tells me they don't know anything about the legal profession, right? Because the number one thing I can say is that if we produce a list of five, that's a little bit frustrating to see six women, you know, talked about when really I could off the top of my head tell you 30 Black women right away who would be overqualified when comparing their qualifications to other people who are currently sitting on the court when they were nominated. We have about 30 Black women who would be considered overqualified, as Black women often are, when we are put into positions like this, we are often overqualified. And I think what Steve did, and I guess we'll get to that, is when I read the list of qualifications. So for example, when you talk about one of the people who's talked about is the top, they've been a state court judge, 
They've been a law firm partner. They've been a federal court judge for longer than almost everyone who's currently sitting on the court. None of them, I don't believe, were state court judges either. So that's a list of this woman's qualifications. Again, it's not a matter of are they qualified. Typically, Black women to get to the highest positions in the legal profession and every other profession tend to be overqualified for the jobs that we actually get. Well, and I want to spend just one more moment on that because there are people who would laugh that off and say, oh, ha, 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 right? You know, I don't believe it. But can you help our audience understand exactly what you're talking about in terms of that process and preparing and needing to be overqualified to do the work to get the jobs that those who have not achieved what Black women have, um, what they've, what they have to do? So you can find this in pretty much every setting. I'd encourage you to look at the websites of a large law firm or look at the faculties of a law school, and you will see that the credentials that Black women in particular need to have to have those positions are typically higher than the credentials, similar to or higher, and I would say a lot of times higher than the credentials of others in terms of how they look on paper, what schools they went to, what jobs they needed to be considered to be qualified for, how many publications they needed, what their track record was before. And as we're seeing with the short list quote here, um, these women are tremendously qualified. And when you start comparing them to the last you know, number of justices that have been appointed, I won't say how many, but we can look at, we can look at the last 10. And I would put every single one of, let's say the top six who've been named, if you put their credentials against them, you will see that they are not just qualified, but many of them would consider to have more years of service in the federal judiciary, more years of service in terms of practice, because remember, very few of the justices we've seen recently appointed have a lot of practice experience. Some of them have state court experience. So the breadth and depth of their experience measures up, I wouldn't say quite well, but in an exceptional way against many of the recent appointees. And that is no, you know, that's no slam against the recent appointees. What it is, is a statement about, do we understand what Black women have achieved in the legal profession? I think what we're seeing is someone said they need to know the difference between a J. Crew catalog and the law. That just tells me there's no understanding of who Black women are, period, yes. but especially in the legal profession. Yes, it was uh, what some would say uh, was a real gut punch. But to your point, it just shows a, a significant uh, lack of knowledge and true ignorance uh, when someone says that. And I couldn't help but wonder if that was also meant to be a kick at the former uh, First Lady Michelle Obama, who popularized people thinking about J. Crew. Um, but what's such a debased comment? And Steve, I want to turn to some of the statistics that you've put online to really help crystallize exactly what um, or at least to uh, intervene in the discussion about qualifications, because what you've shown uh, it are the number of years of service uh, and a, on the bench before appointment. And uh, I, want, I want to just turn it over to you to just talk about that list, why you produce the list and what the list tells us. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I produced the list because I was very, very frustrated by people who don't know what they were talking about, um, you know, making hay out of just the notion that for just to take one example, that Judge Katanji Brown Jackson, who's been on the DC Circuit for about a year, lacks the requisite judicial experience to be a Supreme Court nominee. 
Never mind that she's been on the district court since 2013, um, right? Which I'm bad at math, but that's over eight years of prior judicial experience, um, right? Justice Kruger, Judge Child. I mean, so many of the folks we're talking about, and that's without regard to the folks who aren't judges but have equally impressive, you know, private and academic legal experience, right? Um, so I wanted to actually just put some data together about what prior judicial experience has actually looked like for Supreme Court justices going back however long. Um, and so I ran the data on every justice. I, I started with every justice um, appointed since 1950. And I decided to run all the way back to 1900. Um, you know, there comes a point where it's such a different time and such a different court that I don't know that this is telling us much, but um, at least over the last, you know, X number, almost however you slice the data, Michelle, right? Prior judicial experience has not been a prerequisite to serve on the Supreme Court. Um, and certainly significant prior judicial experience has not been a prerequisite. So what I found was if you just look at the last, you know, 50, um, everyone since 1950, there have been 28 justices appointed in that time. Um, seven of the 28, so one fourth, had zero prior judicial experience, had never been a judge a day in their lives. Um, and 15 had fewer than five years of prior judicial experience. Um, so, you know, in that context where you have a quarter with no prior experience, where you have a majority with, you know, less than five years of prior judicial experience, the notion that someone, again, not the only person to talk about, but like Judge Jackson, who has eight plus years of prior judicial experience, plus her time before that as a public defender, plus all of her other, I mean, like, the notion that these are somehow not sufficient qualifications, I think gives up the game um, that the folks who are making this charge, one, don't know what they're talking about, and two, are using it as code for something else. Um, and, you know, the sort of the, the, the short bottom line is that prior judicial experience has never been a prerequisite for the Supreme Court. It hasn't even been lately. Look at Justice Kagan. Um, there's no correlation um, between that. And you know, Justice that. Amy Coney Barrett, less than a year. Right. Um, so, you know, I, I think the, but the other piece of this, and there's a flip side, Michelle, which is we heard similar charges leveled against then judge, now Justice Sonia Sotomayor, when she was nominated to the Supreme Court in 2009. Um, of all of the justices on the Supreme Court right now, the one who had the most prior judicial experience at the time of her confirmation was Justice Sotomayor. Um, and, you know, and she's the only one of them who was ever a trial judge. Um, mm -hmm. And I think we see a lot of both of those experiences in exactly what is different and to me compelling about her jurisprudence compared to the rest of the courts. And that actually gets us back to the points that were made by Dean Danielle Holly Walker about the exceptional qualifications that then are papered all over and made into something else. So you have uh, then Judge Sotomayor. Uh, as a nominee with this exceptional experience, checking all of the academic credential boxes, uh, et cetera, and exceeding uh, what would be the experiences of people who had, were already seated, but being talked about as being lesser than, unqualified, et cetera. And to your point, one can only come back and think about that as code for something else. And so as we break down this code and what this code represents, uh, Zanel, in the political piece that we've talked about uh, already in uh, this episode, I want to turn back to it because you also mentioned that a Black woman justice uh, might actually benefit the GOP. Uh, can you explain the logic behind what that argument is? And I also think that it's helpful that people think about the role of what 
a justice does. It's, it's not just hearing an oral argument and then immediately making a decision, but it is also a matter of deliberation and communicating with colleagues, etc. So can you unpack a little bit about what that means? Sure, Michelle. So what I, what I argue in the piece and, and really firmly believe is, look, in the past, this has been done, um, nominations, confirmations, um, in a bipartisan manner, and we'd like to see that continue. There's no reason to not. And the court is really at a, a point now of a legitimacy crisis. People don't believe in it. Overwhelmingly, Americans aren't feeling confident with the court. And they should really take this moment, the GOP, to think about what that means, because people like me are watching and others. And instead, what we've heard them come out with are these uh, racial slams, even though someone hasn't been named. Um, and so I, I urge them to take a step back, think about what this moment means, and also put it into context. While it's absolutely important to put a Black woman on this court for all sorts of reasons, um, at least uh, from their perspective, doing so is not going to change the makeup of the court uh, where it is right now. And so it doesn't cost them as much if you would, if you will. Um, and so I really encourage them to think about the legitimacy crisis that we're facing. Um, it's a court controlled by a conservative supermajority that really has achieved, was achieved by the right stealing two seats, which was discussed earlier. And so they need to go ahead and confirm whoever is nominated. I know President Biden has taken the consent and advice very seriously, so he's making his rounds right now, and I just urge them to, to be open. Well, that's really important, this point that you make about the legitimacy of the court right now and the waning confidence that the American public has in the court. And one sees this even in recent times where Justice Roberts seems to be fighting for the court to be perceived as legitimate and uh, centered in the rule of law and not partisan ideology. We see this with the uh, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court siding with liberals in reproductive rights cases. And then very recently, we have a ruling out of Alabama and a ruling that relates to gerrymandering and voting rights. Uh, and it's really disturbing uh, for so many of us. And it's a five to four decision with the Chief Justice siding with the liberals. Fernita, I wanna to turn to you and then I wanna to turn to you, Steve. Uh, what is this case about and what does it represent the fact that it's a five to four decision by the court? So the Alabama case involved a Voting Rights Act challenge to uh, maps drawn by the Alabama state legislature that only only drew one majority mi minority district, despite being able to draw a second one. Um, and the second one in particular in an area where African-Americans were uh, geographically compact, they could have been a majority in their own district. Um, and also there's racially polarized voting in Alabama. So it's a pretty straightforward Section 2 violation um, in the, the lower court. And in Let's, let's keep in mind, the three judges are not like radical liberals, right? It's two Trump appointees on this panel who found that there was a Section 2 violation. And so for the Supreme Court to say, look, you know, even though we are nine months out from the <laughs> general election, if we force the state legislature to redraw these maps, it will cause chaos. And so therefore, um, we are going to stay the lower court decision. Um, it's really outrageous. Um, I think it's outrageous in the sense that um, the, the, the Section 2 violation was quite clear. Um, and the, the lower court was quite thorough 
in, in sort of building the record to show that the violation was there. And so for the court to sort of come in at this stage of the proceedings and refuse to force the, the state legislature to redraw the maps is pretty outrageous. But I do think what it reflects is a hostility that we already knew was there, right? Shelby County versus Holder taught us that the court is hostile to the Voting Rights Act. Um, and the Bronovich decision, which came down um, in the last couple of years, also told us that Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act was on the chopping block, right? You had a decision where the Supreme Court added a bunch of factors that plaintiffs have to take into considerations and try and take into consideration and trying to establish a section two violation, factors that are untethered from the legislative history and make it very difficult to establish a violation of section two. And so I think if you look at the broader context, the Alabama case is not that surprising, but I do think it still feels brazen <laughs> for the court to, to come in at this stage of the proceedings when the case hasn't been fully argued um, and, and weigh in the way that, that it has. Steve, what does it represent that the chief just decided with the liberals in this case? Yeah, I mean, if, if you have a Voting Rights Act decision that's too conservative for John Roberts, I think that tells you something. Um, you know, Fernita says it's not surprising, and I guess that to me is the most damning indictment of what the court did in the Alabama case, which is, you know, five years ago, it would have been stunning for the Supreme Court to intervene in the way that it did in the moment it did. Um, and, you know, and I take Chief Justice Roberts's dissent, and he wrote separately to explain his dissent, to be not that he actually is convinced that the lower court decisions are right. Um, I think he, you know, he is sympathetic to the, to me, problematic um, change in the understanding of Section 2 for which Alabama is arguing, but that um, this kind of emergency order, freezing these district court decisions, putting the maps back into place, isn't supposed to be based on new law. Um, and so, you know, if, as everyone seems to be conceding, the district courts got it right based on the laws it stands today, the fact that the conservatives on the court want the law to be different tomorrow is not supposed to be and historically has not been a basis for this kind of interim emergency relief. Um, and it sort of gives up the ghost. Um, and there's, I mean, I just, just, some of this gets lost in the technicalities of appellate procedure, but there's a remarkable footnote in Kavanaugh's concurrence where he says, you know, the, the Alabama has a, a chance of winning on the merits, but of course, so do the plaintiffs. Um, to which my response is, wait, like if it's 50-50, like if you're saying this is a close case on the merits, you are literally saying that Alabama has not carried its burden for showing that you need some kind of special protection before the election. The only other argument, and this is something Fernita knows as well as anyone, is that there's a special rule for election cases um, based on this incredibly cryptic, you know, 2006 Supreme Court decision called Purcell. But th the election in Alabama is nine months away, <laughs> um, and you know, and the and the the voters, the the plaintiffs in these cases filed the suit the day after. Um, Alabama finalized these maps. I'm not like, unless the rule now is that states get one free racially gerrymandered map each election cycle, you know, this decision is just about indefensible. And in that regard, like Fernita is right that it's unsurprising. I just think it's horrifying that we're at a point where indefensible decisions are unsurprising. Dean Holly Walker, uh, this brings us back to people wondering, well, what effect could a black woman have on the court a court that already has, as Anella's mentioned, a super uh, majority that's conservative. She would replace uh, Breyer. There are only three liberals on the court. So some are saying that there couldn't really be a, a, a kind of substantive effect. And what's your response to that? 
I think there's a tremendous substantive effect. I think we don't have to look any farther than Justice Sotomayor to see what happens when you have someone with a different perspective who's on the court. And I would also say Justice Marshall is an excellent example of this. Justice Ginsburg was an excellent example that the substantive difference is you get to hear the voices of the people who do not agree with. So we can sit here as academics and as citizens and say, we are deeply disturbed. We believe these decisions are indefensible, but there's something to having those words there in a dissent where it explains why the court got the context wrong, why they are so out of step with what is the currently established law. All of those points when made in dissent as we've seen Justice Sotomayor do so powerfully and as Justice Marshall did so powerfully, when we all know when we're teaching in the classroom and we're teaching these decisions, it's one thing for us to offer our opinion. It's another thing to have a justice on the court who's offering the perspective of those who've been left out, of those who've been marginalized, of those Black voters in Alabama who will be seriously damaged by the decision yesterday. It makes a huge substantive difference. And even if you find yourself in dissent for years and decades sometimes on the court, that impact is tremendous. And I think as uh, Zanel and Fernita said earlier in the conversation, Black women have a different life experience. They bring different things to the table. We know that those things will be reflected in the decisions that they write. And even like we've seen with Justice Sotomayor, the decision to write separately, right? Sometimes she's all by herself writing separately. And a lot of those dissents are things that are core to the humanity of people who've traditionally been left out and left behind in American society. But really, this is the point, isn't it? There are so many Americans who are feeling disconnected from the United States Supreme Court and its justices, wondering whether the justices can actually relate to the real day-to-day experiences that they have. And when I think about it, my former colleague and frequent co-author, Dean Erwin Chemerinsky, has written about the Supreme Court having a heyday that extended about 16 or 17 years where there was clear devotion to paying attention to civil liberties and civil rights, and that since that time, the Supreme Court has not necessarily shown a commitment to understanding and lifting up the voices, experiences, etc., of the people who happen to be most vulnerable in our society. That's a conversation that we really need to get back to. What I want to turn our conversation to now is actually some of the names of the folks that we've been hearing about. And believe me, listeners, there is a very long list as Dean Holly Walker has spoken about, and we're going to get into the thick of uh, many different uh, names that are being flown and some that are not. And we're going to start off with on the show today, talking about Judge Katanji Brown Jackson. What is it that we know about her? Help to unpack a little bit about her candidacy and what it represents. So I'm going to turn to you, Steve. All right, tell us about, about the judge. What do we know? Well, I mean, I think, you know, I alluded to this a bit before, but I mean, Judge Jackson was confirmed to the DC Circuit last year. Um, of course, the DC Circuit is historically the you know the most powerful federal appeals court not just because it's in dc but because it has such dominance over big questions of administrative law um, before that she had spent eight years on the dc district court um, so she's appointed by both president obama and uh, president biden um, she's from dc 
um, right? Although she went to high school in Miami, um, she graduated from Harvard Magna. Um, she went to Harvard Law School, where she was a supervising editor of the Law Review. She clerked for a district court. She clerked on the First Circuit. She's she got a, a lot going on. I mean, you know, I, I think what, but what I find, I mean, what I find especially relevant about Judge Jackson's pre-judicial experience is that she was um, a special counsel to the Sentencing Commission um, for the better part of uh, two and a half years. Um, and then she was a public defender, um, uh, you know, for a couple of years. And, you know, there's no, no one on the court right now um, was ever a public defender. And so I think, you know, it's not just that she has this incredible and impressive academic portfolio. It's not just that she has, you know, these litigation chops. It's not just that she has these judicial chops. It's that she also has an experience representing indigent criminal defendants in our legal system that is not reflected by any of the current justices on the court and frankly hasn't been reflected by almost any of the justices on the court in its history mm -hmm. um and so that's you that know says a whole lot i, I think okay. there's a there's a whole lot to this package that i find you know really redeeming and just uh, for those who want the more craven political piece of it you know just last year three republicans um senators collins graham and murkowski joined all 50 Democrats and voted to confirm her to the DC circuit at a time where everyone understood that she would be on President Biden yeah. shortlist. So well, you know, and it's unfortunate that that we had such a, a voting block that didn't. But you're right on the positive of that, those who said, okay, I see this candidate for who this candidate is with these stellar qualifications. All right, then we there's um, California Supreme Court Justice Leandra Kruger. Uh, she joined the California Supreme Court in 2015 clerked for Justice John Paul Stevens. Um, Dean Daniel Holly Walker, uh, Professor Tolson, uh, what does that nomination represent? Maybe we'll start with you, Fernita. Um, Justice Kruger clerked for Stevens, and I think uh, Ju Judge Jackson clerked for Breyer. For Breyer. Mm -hmm. Right. And so had they not been Black women, we would have been having a conversation about how they have been groomed to replace ex-justice. Right. We would not be having this abstract conversation about whether or not a black woman is qualified or a lesser. Whether human. they read fashion right. catalogs and this is how they come to understand law. Right. <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, the, these women truly are exceptional. And just like uh, Judge Jackson, Jackson, I think that Justice Kruger will bring a unique experience to the court. She uh, worked in a de uh, the Solicitor General's office. Uh, in addition to her experience clerking for Justice uh, Stevens, she um is on a state court, right? Like this is this this is all a way of not just, I mean, we're talking about this in terms of black women and their qualification. These women in and of themselves show that the the group of women who are being considered for this, this position is not a monolith, right? They have a diversity of experience that will bring a unique perspective to the court. And I think that uh, Justice Kruger is another example of a candidate who will bring a different perspective than what we see on the court. So Dean Holly Walker, uh, let's talk about District Court Judge J. Michelle Childs. She's a federal trial court judge in South Carolina. Her judicial experience includes four years in state court, 12 years on the federal bench. We know that Representative James E. Clyburn is campaigning hard for her nomination. And there's potential GOP support. At least Senator Lindsey Graham has said that he likes her. He said that it's good for the country to have a court that looks more like America. Some people may not take that very far. It was also Senator Lindsey Graham who had given a nod to Merrick Garland to serve on the United States Supreme Court, and that seemed to evaporate. But that said, 
Dean Holly Walker, tell us about what's unique about District Court Judge J. Michelle Childs and what she would bring to the court. I think Judge Childs has a wealth of experience um, before she has a wealth of experience as a litigator um, and was a labor and employment lawyer and the first black woman to be a partner at a major law firm in South Carolina. I think one of the other things that Judge Childs brings to the table that Steve talked about a little bit earlier is for the first time in a long time, geographic diversity. So to have a justice from South Carolina, um, a state that has not had a justice represented for a very, very long time. And also when we begin to talk about diversity of life experience, Every justice who currently sits on the court has what, except for one, I think, has what we would call kind of a traditional Ivy League background, right? Harvard, 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 Yale. Um, we can throw Columbia into the mix and a few others. Uh, Judge Childs went to University of South Florida for undergrad. She went to University of South Carolina and is a very active um, very active uh, graduate of the University of South Carolina School of Law. And I do think the inclusion of public universities um, into the mix of who we have on the Supreme Court is incredibly important, right? We talk about legitimacy of the court and we talk about differing perspectives. And so Judge Childs brings all of that to the table, I think, in a way that is very attractive. And of course, this incredible wealth of judicial experience in 12 years on the district court, plus her additional time that she served on the state circuit court in South Carolina. There's also Leslie Abrams Gardner, a federal district court judge in Georgia, who happens to be the younger sister of Stacey Abrams. But I want to turn to you, Zanel, and ask about um, another candidate whose name has been floated, and that is Sherilyn Eiffel. What might a nomination of Sherilyn Eiffel bring to the United States Supreme Court? Sure, Ms. Shellen. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned her too, because I do want to emphasize that there are many exceptionally qualified Black women lawyers, both within and outside of the federal judiciary. Um, and, you know, the press has thrown out a, a lot of names. And from our perspective, at least, we're celebrating, we're taking a step back to celebrate that it will be a Black woman. Um, and we'll be uh, happy and very excited to see what the ultimate choice that the president makes. Um, but Sherilyn represents something very different here um, in that she has extensive nonprofit experience, longtime leader as director counsel of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, which is really interesting, especially as we think about the importance of a black woman filling this role, coming in with the life experience, having seen um, the issues that this very court would uh, address, overwhelmingly affect people of color, women, uh, black women um, in particular. This court, of course, hears so many big cases. We talked about voting that Bernita um, went through so carefully for us, but there's also reproductive rights. We'll see what happens with that. Environmental rights, there, you know, criminal justice. We could go on and on with so many areas that Black women and people of color are affected by, and they don't have a court that really understands that lived experience. Well, and I will also say that on this uh, call, there's another name that's been floated too, and that's Dean Daniel Holly Walker, who has also been a federal clerk as well and brings the type of credentials uh, that we've seen on the United States Supreme Court and more uh, beyond that. So we reached this time in our show, it goes by way too quickly, where we ask for a silver lining 
and what we see on the horizon that's a positive thing. And I certainly want you back on the show because I will say that we are going to be doing a road to confirmation. So this conversation will continue. Um, but I want to ask you what you see as a silver lining going forward. And I'm going to start with you, Steve. I, I think there are two big silver linings. I mean, first is, you know, as Zanelle put it, I, I'm just, I'm so excited by really whoever President, President Biden nominates because, you know, this is a case where I, I'm not worried about it being someone who went to the same elite private high school with someone who's already on the Supreme Court, right? Like this is a case where no matter who we're talking about, it's going to be someone who is going to enrich and enliven the court in so many different ways, ways that we can't even predict. I mean, I think that's the coolest part. And so, you know, I think the the biggest silver lining is that even if this nomination is not going to move the center of gravity on the court, which I think we all understand it won't. Um, you know, new energy, new blood, new perspectives, new diversity. It's such an important thing for that institution, period. Um, and, and I think if there's and if there's another piece of this, I also think, you know, the justices are not automatons. They are humans. Um, and we know from experience and we know from plenty of examples, we know from their own, you know, uh, I guess, confessions, that there have been justices who have, whose views have been shaped and changed by exposure to people and experiences and things that they hadn't confronted in their lives before, um, right? That, you know, Chief Justice Rehnquist moves dramatically on the question of sex discrimination over the course of his career, right? At least in part, at least according to Justice Ginsburg, because one of his daughters was a single mother, um, right? And so I think the other silver lining is just like diversity in all forms is good for institutions like the Supreme Court. Um, and so I think there, you know, yes, there's going to be ugliness. Yes, the court is going to keep doing things that I, that at least for Nita and I find hard to defend, um, right? But like this is, to me, you know, so much better than the alternative of just keeping on with where we were, that it's, it's, it's a nice court of optimism, right? In a, in an otherwise, I think, worrying moment in our in our in our political and, and legal discourse. Thank you so much uh, for that, Steve, and for underscoring the importance of broad scale diversity. Frenita, what do you see as a silver lining? Well, you know, I root for anybody black, um, just as a general proposition. But I will say that it's nice for black women to finally get their flowers. Uh, we, you know, we've been doing this work and we think it's important and we value it. If you look at the list of people who are being considered for this position, they are exceptional women and they are exceptional, um, even though they often face the prospect of not being recognized for being exceptional, right? They do the work because the work needs to be done. Um, and that is really the story of black women in this country, trying to make this country better, but doing it without any expectation of anything in return. So it's really nice to see a qualified group of black women finally possibly get their flowers, right? Get some acknowledgement that they have put in this work, that they have made this mark, that they have changed the world already and they are being rewarded with something that they've earned, right? No one asked black women in 2016 how we felt about being excluded from Trump's list, right? So excuse me if right now, if I don't care how white dudes feel about the fact that they're not on the list, right? It is our moment and I'm walking it. That is a silver lining. Bring me a tax because as Dean Holly Walker pointed out, our record stands up to it. Black women are fabulous, and the women on this list are fabulous, and we finally get our moment, so we're winning. Well, there is something to be said about this moment of talking about 
the fabulousness and really helping to set the stage for people to really understand beyond the attacks, this is what Black women have been doing. This is what Black women law students have been doing. These are the kinds of ways in which they have been showing their might. Uh, and move the line though you may, the reality is uh, that their qualifications uh, extend oftentimes beyond, most often beyond those um, who are in the ranks of where they're looking to get to. Zanel, silver lining. Lining to me, uh, Michelle, is that Black women are finally feeling seen with this process, right? It's so exciting in so many ways, and it's way past time. I'm already seeing from our network and even outside of our network increased interest in our courts and who sits on them by Black women and other people of color at a time where the court has not worked for us. So I, I look at this as one step toward repairing the court's legitimacy, and I hope it's just one of many to come. Thank you so much for that. And Dean Danielle Holly Walker, please close us out. What do you see as the silver lining going forward and as part of this process? The silver lining to me is that this door will finally be opened. And I think, you know, it is a realization in 2022 that there are many doors that are still closed firmly to women of color and particularly to Black women. Black lawyers still only make up 5% of our profession. We're severely underrepresented. Black women only make up 2.5% of our profession. So when I look on CNN and I look on MSNBC and I see a picture of six or seven Black women that are on the display and they're talking about the deep qualifications of these women, it lifts up people all over the country. It lifts up our law students who look like these women. It lifts up people who will never be lawyers, but can look up and say, okay, it's possible for me to do anything. Whoever knew that there was a black woman who went to Harvard College, Harvard Law School, was a public defender, clerked for a Supreme Court justice. And there are a lot of people in our country who for the first time over the last two weeks have discovered that there are dozens and dozens of black women who are making their mark in the legal profession. And if we put this spotlight in other fields, if we put it in biology, if we put it in medicine, if we put it in public health, engineering, anywhere, we would see that black women are similarly achieving these incredible things despite all the obstacles. And so for me, that's a huge silver lining to see the women in our profession, some of them, a small, small group of the women in our profession who are achieving extraordinary things get their moment in the sun because it means that when they have their moment in the sun, there will be dozens who will follow after them. There will be hundreds. There will be thousands of Black women who trace the first moment when they thought about becoming a lawyer, when they thought about becoming a judge, to the moment when they saw those six or seven Black women on their screen being talked about for the Supreme Court. And that, to me, is powerful for us, for our daughters, for our nieces, for the women in our lives who are growing up and who look like us to have that moment. Guests and listeners, this has been my honor, privilege, and pleasure uh, to be with Dean Danielle Holly Walker, Professor Fernita Tolson, Professor Steve Vladek, and Zanelle October from the American Constitution Society. Thank you all so much for joining me.
Guests and listeners, that's it for today's episode of On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin. Time goes by way too quickly. I want to thank my guests, Dean Danielle Holly Walker, Professor Stephen Vladek, Professor Fernita Tolson, and Zanel October, Executive Vice President at the American Constitution Society, for joining us and being part of this critical and insightful conversation. And to you, our listeners, I thank you for tuning in for the full story. We hope you'll join us again for our next episode, where we will be reporting, rebelling, and you know, telling it just like it is, as usual, it will be an episode you will not want to miss. And for more information on what we discussed today, head to MsMagazine.com and be sure to subscribe. If you believe, as we do, that women's voices matter, that equality for all persons cannot be delayed, and that rebuilding America, being unbought and unbossed and reclaiming our time are important, then be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin and Apple Podcast, iHeartRadio, Google Podcast, and Stitcher. We are ad-free and reader-supported. Help us reach new listeners and bring the hard-hitting content you've come to expect by rating, reviewing, and subscribing. Let us know what you think about our show, and please support independent feminist media. Look for us at MsMagazine.com for new content and special episode updates. And if you want to reach us to recommend guests for our show or topics that you want to hear about, then write to us at OnTheIssuesAtMsMagazine.com, and we do read our mail. This has been your host, Michelle Goodwin, reporting, rebelling, and telling it just like it is. On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin is a Ms. Magazine joint production. Kathy Spiller and Michelle Goodwin are our executive producers. Our producers for this episode are Roxy Zal, Oliver Hogg, and Nassim Ali Sobani. Our social media intern is Lillian LaSalle. The creative vision behind our work includes art and design by Brandy Phipps, editing by Will Alvarez, and Kyle Good, music by Chris J. Lee, and social media assistance from Lillian LaSalle.